Subject ACT with me, Heather Murray. Subject ACT brings you stories from your local Canberra community and beyond, stories with a global dimension. In this podcast, I'm joined via Zoom by Dr. Dana Bergstrom, Principal Ecologist with the Australian Antarctic Division. Dana has been looking at ecosystems and biodiversity from far northern Australia all the way down to Antarctica. In October, Dana won the 2021 Australian Museum Eureka Prize for Leadership in Innovation and Science. And for those of you unfamiliar with the Eurekas, they're national prizes that honour excellence in the fields of research and innovation, leadership, science engagement and school science. Welcome to the program, Dana, and congratulations on your Eureka Prize. How does it feel to have won such a prestigious science award? Uh, thank you very much, Heather, for having me on board here. Um, I'm pretty chuffed to have won the Eureka Prize, but it's a really nice recognition that um, I, I work in fabulous collaborations. Um, so I, I feel it's for all the people I've worked with has also been recognised. So it's, it's a wonderful feeling. Dana, perhaps you could give us a bit of your background. When did you begin your Antarctic career and what inspired you to go there? I began my Antarctic career when I was a master's student, which was last century. What inspired me was uh, one of my last lectures as an undergraduate where uh, my now mentor, Dr. Patricia Selkirk, who was my lecturer at Macquarie University, stopped her course in plant evolution to talk about the science she was doing and she had just begun working in Antarctica and the sub-Antarctic and I took one look at what she was doing and went can I please join and she was very um, obliging and and let me into her research group and so we still research together and that's a long time ago but that's Mm -hmm. how I got into Antarctic and sub-Antarctic science. Now since you've started work in the Antarctic, you've introduced some quite innovative programs around invasive species, haven't you? Yes, we we identified at the beginning of the century uh, that invasive species were a major major issue. And so it began in the Australian, well, our work began in the Australian Antarctic program, but there were people in other programs as well identifying that non-native species were hitchhiking to Antarctica. And so what I initiated was a program called Aliens in Antarctica. And we had many countries on board and we looked at how, there were little green men in Antarctica, but how humans were facilitating taking things across the isolation barrier, which is the Southern Ocean, to Antarctica. And so it was in our boots and our clothing. We had insects in food and fungi in food. And so this work was done across Antarctic nations, um, across Antarctica, and it's resulted in what's called the Antarctic Treaties Non-Native Species Manual, which is a a help manual for all treaty nations to help stop non-native species getting into Antarctica. Uh, And it's great to see it picked up by, by the treaty and all Antarctic treaty nations. Mm. What uh, native species were threatened by these invasive all, pests? All native species. Um, just just recently, for example, COVID got into one of the stations in the peninsula. And what we don't know yet is whether you can have what's called reverse zoonosis. So COVID-19 came from too close proximity between humans and animals. 
And what we don't know is whether that process can be reversed. And so to have COVID-19 in, in Antarctic stations does present a, a threat to, to the wildlife there at the moment because it's an unknown feature. Now, I believe you were in Antarctica during the summer of 2019-20 when a heat wave hit at the same time that bushfires were burning up the east coast of Australia and coronavirus was kicking off. What have been the implications of that heat wave in the very heart of the coldest continent? It was an extraordinary thing to, to observe. Um, I had documented um, rain in Antarctica from afar in 2001, but to, to wake up and, and look at your window and realise there was raindrops there, it was quite a, you know, a new, unique thing. I mean, rain occasionally happens in Antarctica, but it's happening more frequently. So it, the first time we, we, we noticed things were, were different was I was at what's called Davis Station, and yes, it was raining. Not only had there been rain, it had been quite warm. Uh, not exceedingly hot at that point, but warm, but enough for the glaciers to be melting locally and flooding. So there was rain and flooding. But that was the beginning of this warm air mass and starting to move around the continent. And there were a number of elements to it, but effectively we could just think of this warm mass moving around. And so by the time it got to Casey Station, it actually was our first heat wave with temperatures uh, above eight degrees. So it was the first time a heat wave had been recorded at Casey and then it kept moving. And by the time it got to the Antarctic Peninsula, uh, which is the tail part of Antarctica, the temperatures were above 18 degrees. And okay. so that's, that is a huge shock. And there were big, big um, changes in, in, in local environment. Uh, people were looking at the heat that penguins were were experiencing and they're using sort of heat cameras and they could see that they were quite in stress and they were sort of at all sort of moved away from their colonies and were hanging out in the local streams just to cool down. Mm. Um, and then on the snow, uh, there were blooms of algae growing in the snow. And so these sort of extreme events can have long tails, so they're very short. And the same goes for things like bushfires. So um, they're what we call a pulse event. They come in very quickly and then they go, but the impact is uh, felt for a long time. Mm -hmm. So in 2001, it was the heat wave not in um, at these locations I was talking about. There's one in what's called the Ross Sea. And that resulted in melting again from local glaciers. And they could pick up that tail for at least a decade. So uh, extreme events can have huge impacts but there are other things happening elsewhere as, as you mentioned from the the tropics to antarctica we're picking up signs of ecosystem collapse and in terms of those extreme events in for example the the tropical rainforests of australia we had um heat waves we're called fruit bats it's called mass death um and we're now seeing this a number of times where uh, there was a spectacle fruit bat you know one third of the population uh, was lost in a heat wave. So when we start to get to temperatures that are above um, the survival temperature for a mammal, it's time to really take note. And the impact of fruit bats on the ecosystems is incredible because they're pollinators and they move. And so if you take out one third of your pollinators, then it's going to have blow-on effects in, through your, your forests. What strategies do you suggest to manage 
changes in the face of this climate crisis that have come from your research? Well, what we looked at, we looked at pressures um, or stresses. So, you know, what, what's, what's impacting on these ecosystems? And we found that there are up to 17 different types of pressures or you know, either once or over a few years. And so there are many forces at play. Obviously, the big one is chronic changes to our climate associated with climate change. So depending on where you are in Australia, it will be manifested differently. So we have what we call chronic press. You can imagine you know, holding, holding your hand to something and pressing down. So these things are happening to ecosystems, chronic presses from, from climate change, increase um, temperatures in Antarctica, increase wind speeds. Um, in Australia, increase fire weather. And we also have these extreme events, which are called pulses. And those things are, are the... the the number and the extent of those things happening is increasing. So these are pressures from, from, from climate change, but we also have um, pressures from human activities as well. Um, so our regional activities, so our clearing and our pollution and you know, our urban areas jutting, you know, jutting up against wildlife areas and, and wilderness areas. So, for example, in the, the wet tropics, you know, so cars running into cassowaries is a big issue mm. and so once you identify the pressures then you can work out which ones can you alleviate mm. and so part of this work on ecosystem collapse is that we came up with what's called the three a's and it's a really simple concept but it involves at least you know, 20 to 30 years of conservation science mm. but the three a's stand for uh, first one awareness of what's important to you what are the values and being awareness of what's there. And so anyone who has any attachment to any, any bushland can identify what's important. Um, in, in my local area, it's the blue gums, which are swift parrot habitats and habitats for possums and, um, and all the bird life. Um, and then anticipate what the pressures are, you know, what's, what's coming down the line. And anyone can, again, identify those if you are close to your local bushland you know is it fire is it flood is it long-term climate change is it pollution um is it urban encroachment is you know uh, 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 neighbors you know cutting their their lawns and throwing their weeds over the fence into the local bushland people can identify what those pressures are and then you try and stop them everyone can do their their bit to reduce their carbon usage um, everyone can can look after their environment and start seeing that where they're living as part of the environment. We often quite separate uh, um, where we live and the natural environment, but it's a continuum. Um, it's a continuum from an industrial site all the way to wilderness. Mm. And so, if we see that continuum, we can do things on a day-to-day -day basis that you know aids in that continuum. If you've got a garden, do you plant pollinators? Have you rewilded your, your front strip um, if you have access to a front strip? Um, have you got rid of your lawns and put in native plants? Have you put habitats for, for wildlife? Um, do you drive slowly at night so you don't run into any kangaroos or, or possums? Mm. Um, so they're things that we can anticipate and then we can choose our actions. And the actions, we've broken them down to just leaving things alone, letting them to recover. But sometimes things need to re be repaired so you can, uh, you can assist in your local bushland by, by planting 
you know, trees that aren't recovering from natural processes. So you can, you can help repair damage. But sometimes things have changed so much that we have to move to the next step, which is restoration. It's time to, um, in some places, really you know, help out nature in a yes. big way. Yeah. And then finally, some areas will be changed so dramatically. And instead of throwing up our hands, we have to be brave and create novel ecosystems. And that's the really expensive at the end of the scale, but that's, that's adaptation as to adapt. So they're the processes that we can use in, in action. But hopefully most things are at the, um, you know, let things recover or help them repair. Um, but certainly I know, for example, down the Murray-Darling Basin, local communities are um, identifying those species are more capable of, a of climate change survival and are starting to plant out um, riparian areas, the areas along the, the, the river edge, with species that are going to survive. So there are actions, but we need to take actions now because if we don't, we, we risk loss um, mm. and, and change forever. Yes, I think uh, you're right. We do need to really nurture uh, and encourage local action. Um, Absolutely. Um, think global, act local. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a little saying, but it's very meaningful, isn't it? It's very meaningful. And everyone, uh, and I, I think being, being attached to nature is, is the key to here. We, we found evidence of ecosystem collapse in the Murray-Darling Basin, for example, and 44% of our food comes from the Murray-Darling. And mm. so if we're having problems in our ecosystems, we're also going to have problems in our, in our food bowl areas. Yeah. So everything is connected. And I think being attached to nature is the critical bit. Our solutions will come through us being recognising that we are part of nature and we are connected to the rest of nature. Thank you so much, Dana, for your insights uh, about the ecological imperatives, not only for Antarctica, but for the whole of Australia. Thanks for joining me today on Subject ACT. You're welcome. Thanks, Heather. I've been talking with Dana Bergstrom, Principal Ecologist with the Australian Antarctic Division and winner of the 2021 Eureka Prize for Leadership in Innovation and Science. You're listening to 2XXFM, people-powered radio. Yeah.